Welcome to Savage Minds. Today's guest is Martin Kuhldorf, PhD, a biostatistician, epidemiologist, and professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. His research centers on developing and applying new disease surveillance methods for post-market drug and vaccine safety surveillance, and for the early detection and monitoring of infectious disease outbreaks. Dr. Kohldorf has developed new sequential statistical methods for near real-time post-market drug and vaccine safety surveillance, where the purpose is to use weekly or other frequent data feeds to find potential safety problems as soon as possible. He has also developed tree-based scan statistic data mining methods for post-market drug and vaccine safety surveillance. Keeping the outcome definitions flexible, the method simultaneously evaluates thousands of potential adverse events and groups of related events, adjusting for the multiple testing inherent in such an approach. Another major research area is spatial and spatiotemporal disease surveillance, for which he has developed various scan statistics for disease cluster detection and evaluation, and for the early detection and monitoring of infectious disease outbreaks. These methods are used by most federal and state public health agencies around the world and by many local public health departments and hospital ep epidemiologists. Dr. Kuldorf is the developer of the free SatScan software for geographical and hospital disease surveillance, as well as the TreeScan data mining software. He is co-developer of the R Sequential package for exact sequential analysis. Welcome to Savage Minds. Hello, how are you? I've invited you on the show as you are one of the three creators of the Great Barrington Declaration, co-authored with Sunetra Gupta from Oxford and Jay Bhattacharya from Stanford. You and your colleagues are scientists of great expertise, and the Declaration is as of today already signed by over 639,000 signatories, of which over 37,000 are medical and public health scientists and medical practitioners. Could you tell us about what brought you to co-author this declaration? The basic idea about the Great Barrington Declaration is that when COVID arrived uh, beginning of this year, uh, basic public health principles were thrown out the windows by most countries. So one of those principles is that in public health, you can't just look short term, you have to look long term. Uh, secondly, you can't just look at one disease, COVID-19, you also have to look at public health as a whole. So the lockdown has had major consequences, uh, collateral damage on plummeting uh, childhood vaccination rates, uh, worse cardiovascular disease outcomes, uh, not as good uh, diabetes uh, treatments. Uh, cancers are down, but that's not because there's less cancers, it's because they're not detected. So somebody who uh, may not get the screening, so who would have lived for 20 years might now die three or four years from now from cervical cancer, for example. And of course, the mental health uh, has deteriorated. Uh, uh, both among people who have mental health problems from before, or mental health issues, as well as uh, other people, the general population. So you can't just look at one disease, you have to look more broadly in, if you're gonna follow the principles of public health. The other, the other third one is 
public health is about the health of the whole population. So what we've done with the lockdown is we are protecting very low risk college students and low risk young professionals who can work from home like uh, lawyers, journalists and scientists. While high risk older working class people are forced to work as a cab driver or a, a janitor or working in the supermarket, etc. So we are shifting the risk of infection from uh, from low risk people to high risk people who are and it's the working class who are then sort of put with the burden to develop the immunity uh, in the community that will eventually protect all of us. So uh, uh, and a key feature of COVID, which we should utilize, but we haven't very much, is the fact that while anybody can get infected, the risk of mortality of death is more than thousandfold difference between the oldest and the youngest. So among old people, COVID-19 is a very, uh, very dangerous disease, uh, and more so than the annual influenza. So we have to do everything in our ability to protect older people. But for young people, like children, for example, for children, COVID-19 is less dangerous than the annual influenza. So, uh, so we, uh, we, uh, that's why we call it focus protection or sort of an age-targeted approach where we need to do a much better work job protecting older and other high-risk people many who have done unnecessarily because of the lockdown policies that most countries have employed. Uh, while at the same time, for younger people, the collateral damage is worse than uh, a, a minuscule risk for COVID from COVID-19. So they need to continue to live their life near, near, uh, in near normal fashion. They should still wash their hands and stay home and sick and so on. Uh, but we have to avoid that collateral damage. And yes, uh, schools, for example, and universities, they should be open. Uh, it's uh, bad for their education, but also children's physical health and mental health and uh, developing the social skills that children used to do. So that's sort of the basic uh, principles behind the Great Barrington Declaration. And it's, and it's very much in accordance with uh, the pandemic preparedness plan that most major countries have prepared uh, several years ago, as we knew we we're gonna get a pandemic sooner or later. And uh, we're not the only one who has pointed this out since, uh, since uh, uh, at least since March. But uh, so it's nothing novel or new with what we are saying. Uh, it's, uh, it's something that uh, most uh, efficient disease technologies that I know personally agree with. Right. I've been reading reports since the first SARS outbreak that scientists were warning governments to be prepared. But I'm wondering, since you say that what is happening now goes against public health praxis, why has this been allowed to run the course that it has? In fact, in, in Europe, where I am, I'm witnessing countries go into yet another lockdown. And there's very little pushback in most areas, although Madrid had the pushback these last six weeks. And more and more people are realizing that this is as much a public health disaster as it is a, a class issue. Because as you mentioned, 
it's the working class people who are not being taken care of. I don't know if you noticed, it happened in the States, it happened in Italy and in England. The first thought was about freezing mortgages or freezing mortgage payments, but you didn't hear a peep out of politicians about the most vulnerable who are the renters, right? Uh, that's a very good point. And I'm just curious as to how the WHO seems to have been given the baton to run the show, on including CNN. I mean, you're in Boston, so you see, and you probably saw a bit of the Cuomo show, as I like to call it, that to me did a huge amount of damage because he was sort of, he reminded me of a fake reality show because a lot of people know that reality shows like Worldwide Wrestling are fake, um, they're scripted, and his going in and out of his narrative about how he suffered and he seemed to always be fine on the camera but narrating at night i had a fever at night this happened always off camera and americans and europeans have been lulled into this this sense of fear despite the data that you have mentioned that other medical professionals have been talking about to include john uh, yanidis who's had a video pulled from youtube for saying as much what what is moving this vehicle where public health should know better right uh i'm as a public health scientist i'm absolutely stunned and shocked about what's happened and i don't know why it went down the way it did because i'm a simple scientist and that's something that probably politicians and journalists understand better than i do but i know that for example in march i I tried to publish some these kind of thoughts uh, in the media in the United States, and I failed miserably. Uh, everywhere, everywhere I sent it, rejected it. So eventually, I posted something on LinkedIn because I can do that on my own. Uh, on the other hand, in my native Sweden, I published three pieces in the major daily newspapers. Uh, there was no problem there, uh, but. Uh, so, so that's sort of uh, very surprising because I've been working on infectious disease outbreaks for a couple of decades. I've been working with many uh, health departments, uh, both in the US and in other parts of the world in, in the very practical uh, matters of, of disease outbreaks. And I work at uh, a respectable university. So it's sort of surprising that nobody, none of the media, neither the sort of the general media nor the scientific media wanted to hear what I had to say about this. Uh, and I don't know why that was. Uh, well, you and now 37,000 other specialists. I mean, I looked at the names of some of the signatories after you posted this online, and these are serious people. I, I've spoken to many experts in the field to include virologists, and many people are concerned about the kind of monolithic message being sent out. Or in the case of the UK, SAGE, there's a panel, who's on the panel? How are the decisions being made? How did the Imperial, Imperial College study early in the year that was advocating for a more herd immunity push, then that became very quickly pulled down and everything switched to the lockdown. Is this a reaction to the media spinning the narrative faster than the public can read informed essays about it? Yeah, so I think the media certainly had something to do with it. Uh, 
I mean, you mentioned that we have many people signing the declaration and that's not surprising to me that we have, for example, many medical professionals because if you're a psychiatrist or a psychologist, you, you, you've noticed firsthand the collateral damage on mental health. If you are a cardiologist, you notice firsthand the damages on, uh, on uh, cardiovascular disease. If you're an oncologist, you notice the, the fact that people are not getting the cancer screening, you're worried about that. If you're a pediatrician, you notice uh, that uh, the kids don't get the vaccinations that they should. If you're geriatricians, you notice that uh, older people are not properly, properly protected and taken care of uh, from this pandemic. So the medical doctors and other medical health professionals, they sort of see this in their daily jobs. So it's not at all surprising to me that many of them are very supportive of the Great Barrington Declaration. And what's going to happen with this declaration? I mean, is any government taking a look at this? Because they should. They should be looking at what you have laid out there, what other scientists have been saying in terms of the, the way these kits, these tests are being run to exaggerate the amount of people who are actually sick with the disease as opposed to testing positive for carrying a certain <laughs> indicator of having come in contact with the disease. Everything seems to be hyperbolic. It's really brimstone and fire. It's, it feels almost biblical to me what's going on, despite the fact that we have scientists everywhere. What are the plans for this declaration? Uh, we are trying to promote it uh, both uh, to the general public as well as to governments and uh, and there are governments who are following a similar approach, not necessarily because of the declaration that's impossible to know, but uh, also because of the writing that uh, we and many others have done before. So, for example, if Florida is following a, a focus protection strategy. So, uh, and I think, I, I hope that there will be sort of a gradual shift towards that. And I think there's some, at least in the United States, there's now... Uh, we've been pushing for a long time that schools should be open. There's, there's absolutely no public health reasons to, in terms of COVID to keep schools closed from in-person teaching because uh, children are at very low risk. Uh, teachers are not at higher risk than other professions. And there's enormous damage to children and, and to all children, but of course, mostly even more to working class children. So we're really doing a huge disservice to our children by not having them in school and online schooling, uh, that doesn't work. Uh, 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 that's sort of a disaster. So kids needs to be in-person teaching. And there is some movement now, uh, at least in the United States, uh, we can see that people are coming on board on, on, on the Great Barrington Declaration view on, on this matter. So that's positive. But uh, this is gonna be a long, slow struggle. So uh, we'll just have to keep pushing part of the declaration mentions the lower childhood vaccination rates versus worsening cardiovascular disease outcomes, etc. This is not based on your guess. This is based on actual science, right? Yes, and we have an FAQ uh, <coughs> where we uh, list things in more detail than the one-page declaration and where there are, uh, uh, where there are uh, uh, links to some of these things. But there's also uh, another website called... Uh, collateralglobal.org that is uh, collecting uh, uh, both scientific as well as news articles about the various aspects of collateral damage that's being caused. 
and uh, it's it's not just in the in the Western world. Uh, lockdowns in, uh, in the developing world has been a disaster with uh, people and children starving to death or being malnutritions, which is going to have long-term consequences on their health. So uh, uh, those those people who are promoting lockdowns are really not thinking about the well-being of everybody, uh, and certainly not about the well-being of uh, the working class and the less fortunate, less affluent members of society. Absolutely. And it's interesting because you just went through uh, the presidential election there and COVID formed a massive core to the discussions happening. Now, I'm, I'm fascinated by this simply because I remember when in Europe, everyone was going into lockdown. We were in lockdown very early. And in the States, it didn't quite happen because of the way that states can govern themselves autonomous to the national government. But I remember thinking um, that lockdown would not go over very well in, in my home country because of um, the guns <laughs> and because of our, our uh, tenacious hold on our individual rights. So the idea of public health and common concern is something that you're Swedish, I believe. So I'm sure you noticed that Americans are more individualistic. Yet the paradox is your own country experimented with another virus mitigation effort and was damned for it by American media, by British media, even Italians. One day a woman said to me, well, we're not like the Swedish. We don't kill our grandparents. So it's interesting to see that this virus mitigation in the media has become more emotional than scientific. In fact, it's 90% emotional and very little science. What can you add to your observations coming from someone who's not American living in the US watching how this is represented in the media there? Well, I think that most Americans, like most people in the world, do uh, care about others. And I think that a lot of Americans have been tricked into thinking that uh, lockdowns is the way to help protect not only themselves, but also others. Uh, so I think a lot of people do it out of the goodness of their heart. Um, but... Uh, it really is the other way around. Lockdowns are creating so much damage that if you do care about not your own or your own children, but also about your neighbor's children and your children's in the other neighborhoods, then the right thing to do is to, uh, to scream as loud as you can to get the schools open for in-person teaching, for example, to get the universities open, to... Uh, to open uh, open society so that uh, uh, young adults can live near normal lives. They can exercise, uh, uh, use the playgrounds, uh, go to the gym, etc. At the same time, it's equally important that we have to do a much, much better job protecting the elderly. What's been going on in many states in the US, and, and you're right that in the United States, public health is the responsibility of the state. Uh, so it's the governors who are responsible for the public health, not the, the federal government. So therefore, it's different in different states. But in many states, 
they just did the opposite of what you should do. They closed the school, even though the kids have are not at risk and uh, and uh, uh, there's no public health reason to do so. At the same time, nursing home residents and other older people were not properly protected for, and many of them have died because of it, or because of this uh, misguided lockdown strategy. So. Uh, People think that they're doing sort of the right thing by by suffering and doing the lockdowns, in, when in fact it's the opposite. That uh, uh, opposing lockdown it's what will help the public health and will help the neighbors and their fellow citizens. Well, yes, this takes a lot of understanding from people to sort of step away from the fear, because you know, coming from <clears throat> Italy here. Uh, when things started to go really badly, uh, we were put into lockdown in the north on the 23rd of February. And the government was issuing these long decrees. I kid you not, some of them were over 100 pages. And in Italian law, we're supposed to be reading all of them. I can't even tell you how many times my eyes have glazed over. But one of the things that came out in science early in the spring was an explanation as to why Italy had such high numbers. And a lot of this, I'm an anthropologist, is completely cultural. It's because Italians, like Spanish and like much of the French, live in multi-generational households. And it's not uncommon to have three generations under one roof. That's not the case in countries like Germany, for instance, and I presume also Sweden and Norway, where there's more distancing, everyone has their own house, families visit each other, you know, when they can, but, um, and, and this will take a lot of understanding from people to really configure a way out of this that might not mean total lockdown, but would this mean that countries like Italy and Spain need to rethink living with grandmother and grandfather? Uh no, not uh, in the long term, but maybe in just in the short term setting. Uh, and uh, there are, of course, multinational home in other places also. And we've, there was a study from Stockholm in Sweden that actually showed that if you're older, than, if you're above 70 years old, you're at higher risk if you live with working age adults versus living with adults that are the same age as you are. I think it was about a 60% increase. So, so multi-generational living does increase the risk. Uh, the children actually in that study did not increase the risk. So uh, the children are not the dangerous ones, but it's the working age adults that increases the risk for the older people. Right, except during the first lockdown in Italy, a lot of parents were leaving their children with the grandparents. And that augmented things a bit because the parents were interacting with other adults and then interacting with their own children who would then be left with the grandparents in the day. Yeah, and then the, they have to, the parents have to keep, pick up their children with the grandparents and then of course have to interact with their older, parent, or older the grandparents. So uh, yes, uh, actually so closing the schools worsened the situation because of these things. It made it more difficult for older people to, uh, to self-isolate. And the idea of self-isolation also comes with baggage in countries like France and Spain and Italy, where we must take care of our elderly, so people say. And at the same time, the contact with elderly is a danger. I mean, there's always that potential risk. 
So, I mean, the way to deal with it, and it's actually the most challenging situation to, to protect the elderly is the multi-generational homes. It's easy, the nursing homes are easier to protect actually. Uh, uh, but in terms of multi-generational homes, what you can do is if, uh, if the working age adults can work from home, then they should do so because then they can sort of be in the bubble together with their older parents and, and the children going to school is not dangerous. So the children can still go to school, but if the, if the working age adults can work from home, that will reduce the risk. If that's not possible, maybe for a few months, uh, three or four months during the height of transmission, the, the older uh, grandparents in the family could maybe live with a sibling or a friend uh, who they can then be in a bubble with. Or, uh, uh, or if that's not possible, some of the empty hotel room could be offered for free to these people, to, to, to all the people to live for a few months. But it's only for a few months, but, but what lockdown does, lockdown has uh, dragged on the pandemic. So uh, if it had its normal course, it would have been finished by three, four, at most six months. But by dragging out the pandemic, you, uh, you, uh, you make it more difficult for older people to protect themselves, including people in multi-generational homes. So it makes it much more difficult. Uh, so, the, so in that sense, also the lockdown, because no old person wants to be self-isolate for over a year. That's uh, brutal. So you, for a few months, you can you take some extra precaution or protect yourself. So had we not gone into lockdown, this might have been over already? <laughs> I have no words. I am speechless. <laughs> wow. It could have been over with, you, with, uh, with less mortality if we had properly protected the older people. So you're more in favor, I presume, with the way that, that Sweden has gone about things by they protected the elderly. They even had visitation happen from balcony to street level uh, in many um, elderly homes. Um, and, oh, wow, I'm sorry, I'm still in shock by what you just said. Um, because now you see places like the UK, this is what cracks me up a bit. Um, the UK is in this semi-lockdown to very lockdown state, depending on what part of the country you're in. And this is all in preparation for Christmas. And I'm thinking, wait a sec, you can't just take the lid off the boiling pot of water and then put it back on and take it off. I mean, this will have some effect, but it won't have long-term effects at this rate, would it? Yeah, that's correct. So that's the, the first public health principle I mentioned. We have to look at the long-term rather than short-term. And Sweden could have, Sweden, Sweden did a good job by keeping schools open uh, throughout the height of the pandemic. And, uh, among the 1.8 million children ages one to 15 who, who went to daycare and school during, during this pandemic, there were exactly zero deaths. So uh, they did certainly the right thing to do that. There were problems in the Stockholm area where they didn't, with the nursing homes, they didn't protect the nursing home residents well. So that was a failure of Sweden. Uh, but certainly keeping the schools open and also not locking down with, uh, with uh, stores and restaurants was a good decision. 
Okay, and what about the use of masks? We're seeing Italy started uh, recommending or actually by law making it obligatory to wear a mask about a month ago. Other countries have fallen suit. Um, but then yesterday, the Denmask study came out showing that masks uh, virtually show no improvement about the transmission. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, so the Denmark study shows that the person who is wearing a mask uh, does not benefit from wearing the mask. Uh, that's what the that's what the Danish study shows. It doesn't show it doesn't have anything to say about the other way around. If if wearing a mask protects other people from 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 you if you are sick, so it shows it shows one of the two directions, and it's a very important study, and it's a randomized study, so that's good. Uh, so I just wanted to sort of clarify that. I think a concern about masks that I have is that if older people think, as, as some do, they think if they think that they are safe to go out in a crowded space because they are wearing a mask and other people are wearing a mask, that is not good because they are not safe. The masks will not save. So, so people are claiming that masks are 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 very protective and are going to save people's life, I think that's irresponsible public health message because older people need to be careful, shouldn't be in crowded spaces, and the fact that they are wearing a mask and other people are wearing a mask doesn't make a change to that. They need to be physically distanced uh, from crowds. Uh, they should be outside, go to the park, go bicycling, go walking or, or whatever, uh, they should try to see friends and relatives because that's important for your mental health. And uh, uh, when they do that, they, uh, uh, if they do it outside, that's the best. And if they have to do it inside, then it's good to have their family and friends be tested beforehand uh, to be protected. So, uh, but uh, I'm afraid that this mask things it can actually make older people less cautious and go to the supermarket to go to the stores uh, in other crowded places uh, and become infected because of that you're listening to savage minds we hope you're enjoying the show please consider subscribing we depend on listeners and readers just like you now back to our show the way that the media messages are getting out are giving really bad information. In Italy, you'll see elderly people on bicycles with masks. They're on a bicycle by themselves, by the way. And I worry about the amount of oxygen that a 75-year-old is getting while cycling. And at the same time, they're, like you just mentioned, being told that if they wear a mask, they can go in crowded places. Well, I'm happy that they're out bicycling, that's great. I don't understand why they're wearing a mask on their bicycle. Unless they're out bicycling inside in a crowded cyclodome or something like that, but I don't think that's what they're doing, so. There's a lot of people you'll see doing elderly with masks on doing that kind of physical activity, which worries me. Walking is one thing, but that is a common sight in Italy. Well, recently, there was three weeks ago, a publication uh, by Imperial College that 
showed or made the claim that of the roughly 365,000 people that were studied between June and September through finger prick testing, that this has somehow demonstrated that their immune systems that they assumed would be able to fight COVID-19, that the antibodies fell by roughly 26% during the period in question. And this was using the REACT real-time assessment of community transmission study, right? So the media heralded this as a blow to any claim for herd immunity, yet other scientists have claimed that antibodies form only part of the body's immune response. Could you elaborate about why this study is a nail in the coffin or not for herd immunity? Uh, it's very surprising uh, that so much nonsense has been uh, uh, talked about immunity. So uh, if we look at the population base, we have millions of people who have been infected by COVID-19 who've had the disease. And there's only a handful of reinfections. So if there was no immunity, or, or weak immunity, we would have had a lot of a lot of reinfections by now. So there's clearly a very good immunity to COVID-19. And that's not a surprise because that's what happens with other viruses, most other viruses, uh, including the other coronaviruses. Uh, so uh, we clearly have immunity to this. Whether it's lifelong or not, we don't know, but there's clearly good immunity from this disease. Now, the immune system have different parts. So uh, if you're sick, uh, you will, some people who are sick will develop antibodies, but then they will wane. So they're back to uh, undetectable levels after a while, but that doesn't mean that you're still not immune. Also, there's other forms of immunity like T-cell immunity. So when people say that only 10% of the U.S. have positive antibodies and therefore 90% are susceptible, that's just nonsense. We don't know how many people are immune, but it's certainly more than 10% and probably considerably more uh, than the level of the antibodies. And we have, we, uh, so, uh, so there's a lot of nonsense having been said about immunity and claims that there might not be immunity and so on. And I don't know where that's coming from because that sort of was counter to all the science we, uh, we know from before. So it seems like suddenly people threw out all the prior scientific knowledge uh, that we knew from before 2020 and trying to learn everything uh, from scratch, which doesn't make any sense at all. Well, certainly uh, working from within the media, I've noticed that it's about cl clicks. I hate to say it, but there's a lot of clickbait out there regarding COVID. Um, not coincidentally, Twitter has made a great effort to pull any kind of sharing of articles that they call COVID skeptical that most of us would call scientific, right? So we're now not allowed to think uh, on these platforms, which are during lockdowns for so many people, they're the only public square. They're not even the virtual public square because there is no, there is no physical space for people to meet anymore. <laughs> and I'm, I'm quite shocked by the amount of uh, 
dumbing down of science that's been allowed to take place for media, even really reputable sources like the New York Times, you know, everyone's running with the story, no herd immunity. And like you mentioned, I mean, T-cell, we know a lot about T-cells from AIDS. That's when I remember reading about T-cells in the 1980s as a kid. And somehow we're back to leeches and bleeding people. I mean, we somehow step back 500 years in science just for the sake of a good news story. And um, I imagine that's hampered a lot of scientific debate, uh, open debate, I mean. Uh, that's true. So in the beginning of this pandemic, there were no open uh, debate. The, the lockdown uh, proponents, they had, uh, they were, they had, they could do whatever they want. They had the, sort of the, the media to themselves. So I think the, the, the thought behind the Great Barrington Declaration uh, was that uh, each of us has sort of tried to get out our measures on our own without much success because you can easily dismiss one person. But since there were three of us, uh, we were all had all worked on infectious disease technology for many, many years and infectious disease outbreaks. Uh, and we were all from three respectable universities, Oxford, Harvard, and Stanford. When we came out with that declaration, it became impossible for the media to ignore it. So I think that was, so there was nothing new or novel or, or in the content, but the fact that it was three people rather than one, all working on infectious disease diseases and from three prominent universities, that made, <clears throat> that made it impossible for the media uh, to ignore it. And of course, there were a lot of people, there were a lot of uh, uh, smears and inaccurate uh, descriptions of the declaration, but uh, from various media sources. Uh, but sometimes bad media is better than no, better than being ignored. So uh, it, it, the word got out there, and I think that was important, and that was the contribution of the declaration. And then other people who had said the same thing can, can sort of use the declaration as a as a support for what they are doing. It is interesting, isn't it, that scientific thought has been bifurcated into right and wrong, when we know historically science is about asking questions and looking for the answers. And sure, you can make a postulate and you can even prove that it's not the right one, but we give the benefit of the doubt to run the experiment and to see the evidence and the conclusions made. And here we are we're back to, um, you're either lumped in with the anti-vaxxers and the flat earthers, or you're pro-lockdown because you love your grandma, right? I mean, that's pretty much the way this is being disseminated on major media. Well, I would sort of say that uh, lockdowns uh, have, I think maybe the people who are, who are arguing for lockdowns without considering all the collateral damage, um, they are, in, the, in my mind, uh, similar to uh, other uh, pseudoscientific uh, thoughts. Yes, yes. Well, Flat Earthery has made a comeback in recent years, and I work in other uh, topics that deal with the current drift towards anti-science notions and the way I work on identity politics and the way that people are very happy to put science under the carpet for feeling. And I do find it's part of our 
sociological, cultural makeup these years. There's other reasons for that, but it's not a coincidence that these responses have come at a time of a pandemic. So you probably understand this. So you understand the sociological uh, and political and psychological aspects much better than I do as just a simple scientist. So, uh, and I think thinking about those things is very important. So I appreciate that you're doing that and that you are uh, communicating those thoughts. Well, it's hard because, you know, during the lockdown where I'm living, I was telling people, okay, social distance, use that model. We have to wait for the science to come in. I was, okay, I was pro-lockdown because I was scared to death by what the media was telling us and by what scientists were saying initially. But skip to 10 days later, two weeks after that, the information became very clear that this was not the Black Plague. This was not the bubonic plague. Okay. And lockdown where I was, I'm living lasted for almost four months. It was cruel. And the mental health effects on our children, on us as parents, not nice. And any parent will tell you the same thing. I have yet to meet a parent who loved lockdown. Single people, okay. I've talked to the people who were able to organize their album collection in alphabetical order, but that's not most of us. <laughs> okay. What I do find, however, is that people, after I started to say, hey, we need to be questioning the lockdown immediately on Facebook. Hey, but you wrote in the, two months ago, this, this, and that. And I said, yes, I'm a thinking person. I change my thoughts based on facts, right? I mean, Imagine if we had all lived at the time of Galileo, right? Wouldn't we have to change our thoughts about heliocentrism or whatnot? <laughs> and here we are, you know, months later. And I remember, you know, when lockdown started, people were saying this was a conspiracy of the Gates Foundation, that it was 5G, and there was a lot of cohesion between anti-vaxxers and anti-lockdown and so forth. And it's much more complex than being against or for vaccines, but not ironically, just last week was announced that there's a 95% positive response to these vaccines that are being, one of the vaccines being developed by BioNTech. And you have worked much with the uh, pharmaceutical field and the pharmaceutical uh, post-drug market and vaccine safety surveillance sector. What are your thoughts on the current vaccine trials from transparency to methodology and the rather quickly planned rollouts to disseminate this vaccine as early as January? Uh, so first of all, while I have worked a lot with pharmaceutical drugs and vaccine, I have never actually uh, worked uh, uh, for any pharmaceutical companies. I've never received any money from pharmaceutical companies. So. And the reason is because I work with drug and vaccine safety, I think it's important for me to be not have conflict of interest uh, when I do that so that I can uh, make my judgments uh, uh, either when either saying that there's no problem or that there is problem without having those kind of conflicts of interest. Uh, but I worked uh, uh, on vaccine safety surveillance and monitoring for a long time as part of, uh, for example, the Vaccine Safety Data Link, which is a, a, a CDC-sponsored project in the US, which monitors the safety of every new vaccine that comes out. And most of the time, we don't find any problems, and that's good. 
that is good when the vaccines uh, don't have problems. And in some rare cases, we have found problems, and then that may change the vaccine recommendations. Uh, for the for the vaccines, uh, I've only seen the press releases because they haven't actually released the actual data. Uh, so uh, uh, that seems positive. At the same time, it's a press release from the company who is making the vaccine. So uh, I would like to see the data before making any judgments either on efficacy or on the safety. But as soon as the vaccines are out there uh, and approved by the FDA in the US and by EMA in, in Europe, uh, we will monitor the safety of these vaccines by checking people who get the vaccine and then monitoring what other adverse, what other health events they have after the vaccine to see if that's more than you would expect by chance. There will always be some people who have, let's say, a, a, a seizure a few weeks after getting the vaccine, but the question is, are there more than you would expect by chance? So we will use weekly data uh, that we will receive weekly electronic health data. Um, and we will continue, we will start monitoring this vaccine as soon as they, uh, they uh, are approved by FDA. And how, one thing I did read about the um, vaccine trials is that there are very few participants over the age of 75. Now, we are being told that, and the data seems to suggest quite strongly, that the majority of people dying from this disease are in fact over 75. Does this not prove a bit problematic for the results of any vaccine trials since the very demographic that the vaccine is aimed for is excluded from the testing? Uh, so people in their 60s and uh, 70s, uh, they also have, especially in the 70s, have high risk. So. Uh, so, so I guess they are partly there, uh, but it's also important to realize that the vaccine is, is not only for those high-risk people, but also, let's say, for nursing home staff. Mm -hmm. uh, so if nursing home staffs are vaccinated, then they cannot contract the disease. And maybe, look, if a nursing home staff is 25 years old, they don't they are so low risk that the vaccine is not really going to help them very much, but it will help them not to spread it to, uh, to the nursing home residents that they work with. Uh, so uh, we can therefore use, so the, depending on the nature of the vaccine, the, the performance of the vaccine, we can use it in different ways. So we can use it both. If it works for older people, we can use it to protect them. But even if it doesn't work for older people because they have a worse immune system or whatever, uh, we can still use it to protect them by vaccinating nursing home staff and hospital staff and other, uh, other similar uh, people. Yes, but a lot of people are now worried, and uh, going back to the anti-vaxxers, you have a lot of people worried they're going to be obligated to take this even if they do not. Uh, wish to. Do you see, do you foresee this vaccine being mandatory one day? I hope it's not because public health depends on having trust between public health officials and the population and regular people. And if you, if you start mandating things, that trust breaks down. And I think that will have negative long-term consequences of public health. 
So it's much better to be very clear and, and tell people what are the benefits uh, of the vaccines, if there are any adverse uh, reactions to it, that has to be also be clearly specified. And then uh, I think most people are gonna take it voluntarily if it's a good vaccine. Uh, at least in those groups for which it makes sense for them to take it, because it could be that we have a vaccine that makes sense for certain age groups to take, but not other age groups. But we don't know the performance of the vaccine yet, so we can't say that. True. Well, there's a lot of data that's going to, I presume, come out in the coming years even, that will show exactly what has gone on. Like, even in terms of uh, what we think to be true today may very well turn out to be very different uh, after more studies are done, more data is analyzed. Yeah, um, and that's true for the collateral damage, for example, because right now we don't know how many uh, extra deaths we have due to cardiovascular disease, for example, or how many extra deaths we're going to have that the collateral lockdown is going to cause for cancer. But eventually we'll, we'll know those numbers. Well, also how much lockdown has, look, um, I'm a very relaxed person by and large. I'm active, but I'm very relaxed. I have so many more gray hairs this year. I have never slept so badly as I have this year. And all of these things take a toll physically on the human body. And, and I'm not alone. I've spoken to many other people, uh, especially parents, because when you talked about homeschooling being uh, not acceptable, it's, it's practically a joke. They're expecting for parents to work full time and be Mary Poppins. And anyone who has kids knows that you can't do two things at once, right? Uh, I know that. Uh, I am a single father with three kids, including uh, two four-year-olds. So uh, I certainly know that by, by personal experience. Oh, yes, word. It's so hard. <laughs> well, look, you know, Dr. Fauci read your declaration and he said, that the pathway to herd immunity he called unacceptable. Uh, and I'm you know, wondering, in all of these months, I've seen his face everywhere, I have nothing personal against the man, but how is it that public health has been put in the hands of one single person? Um, are you and your colleagues, Drs. Gupta and Bhattacharya, asking for in the eventual future pandemics to come, and we know there will be more, that perhaps medicine might have open and transparent forums, forums such as SAGE in the UK, where people can know who is there and that these forums must necessarily have a vast representation of opinions to include dissent. It's important that uh, uh, there is scientific discourse and that dissent is allowed. Uh, and I will give you the example of Sweden because they are actually, so I have, I wrote uh, uh, pieces in the newspapers defending the Swedish policy of keeping schools open, etc. Uh, there were, most infectious disease technologists in Sweden were in favor of the policy and are in favor of it. Uh, but there were some academics out in other fields, uh, plus one infectious disease technology, that were against it. And they were criticizing the government very harshly through multiple, there were like 22 of them in one op-ed and then there were 25 in the next and so on. So they were doing that in multiple op-eds in the major newspapers. So I disagree with them 
but I think it was very good that they were able to write what they what they wrote, because it's important for the for for everybody to be able to 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 read that discussion, and make their own judgment. And if you try to suppress it, then people get suspicious. So even though I disagree with these academics quite strongly. I am very glad that they actually wrote what they wrote because it was important to have that discussion whether Sweden should do a lockdown or not because every other country, most other countries was doing it. So that was a critically important discussion to have in Sweden. So I'm glad that even though I disagree with them strongly with what they wrote, I'm very, very glad and appreciative that they did write it. Well, Sweden was one of the few countries where dissent was published. As you are well aware, you know, YouTube is pulling videos of anyone who talks about this virus or the various methods that governments use to react. Uh, any criticism is taken down. At the same time, you know, it's uh, the run up to lockdown reminded me very much as uh, to what happened after 9-11 in the States. I don't know if you were in the States during the um, end of 2001. I was. Um, and it, it was interesting for me to see, I, I was actually in Italy at the time, but I went back to the States uh, quite frequent to see friends and family. And I was taken by the fact that there were certain things that the government did, like they had colors in New York City for the days that were safe to go to school. So kids had this whole spectrum of fear based on rainbow colors that the city of New York quickly had to pull down from its website because kids were starting to associate rainbows with terror attacks, right? Oh, okay. It was, really, it was really crazy, you know? Um, and there was all this information disseminated about the danger of the next terror attack. And there was um, a hype about a situation that, though 9-11 was very tragic and, and horrid to those individuals and their families and friends, the reality is that there was a theater made up that resulted in, as you recall, uh, in 2002, the suspension of habeas corpus. And we were put in a state of emergency in the United States that when I went back and lived again there in 2002, I was quite alarmed. Not just the flags everywhere, the, the fear of the, the Muslim other, but here we are now with this disease where we have scientists telling us this is actually not true what CNN is saying. And then their voices are pulled by big tech corporations like YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, etc. Yeah, yes, How? yesterday uh, YouTube uh, uh, pulled uh, a video by Mike Yeadon uh, in the UK. He is uh, a very knowledgeable uh, person who has worked for, for decades on uh, respiratory infectious diseases. And he was sort of clarifying uh, a lot of things about this pandemic in a sort of very educational manner. Uh, and uh, about immunity and so on. And uh, uh, people may agree or disagree with it, but uh, it's very important to hear his views. And they pulled it from YouTube. That and was not allowed. He's a former CEO of Pfizer, as I recall, or a VP uh, or something. You know, vice president or something, yeah. Yes, yes. I was quite shocked. I read about that this morning when I woke up. Um, and this is it. We're in this 
very bizarre space where for the first time in our history as a human species, we are being told to not interact with each other yet because this is where the first time comes in. We have technology to allow us to interact, you there, me here. And at the same time, we have ways of communicating ideas that are verboten to the very companies where we might be able to place our discussion, right? And those companies, uh, big tech as they're known, are able to have enormous amount of power over what is said, what is not. And this has caused all sorts of havoc from in recent weeks, from around the 20th of October, several times, Mark Zuckerberg, Jack Dorsey have had to go to sessions in the US government to speak to Congress about what they are doing to censor or control free speech on their, their platforms. It's a very big story, this, but when it comes to public health and science, I would think that more is better, even as you point out with the colleagues um, with whom you disagreed in Sweden, not that they were right or wrong, not that you were right or wrong, but that different voices can be heard. And that seems to be getting snuffed out in all of this lockdown, speak from a computer and hope YouTube doesn't pull it or Twitter doesn't pull it. Yeah, I think that for 300 years now we have lived in the age of enlightenment, but it seems to me that it's ended this year 2020. And I'm very concerned about the future of science and the ability of the scientific community to maintain a, a proper scientific discourse. Me too. I, uh, I, I watched on Netflix this video about the Flat Earth conventions that are happening at an alarmingly frequent rate. <laughs> they believe that there is a glass cover to the Earth. I kid you not. They have a, it's crazy. You have to watch it. Um, you'll shake your head, but it, it'll give you a nice distraction from the insanity we're living in. Um, yeah, and I think that's sort of a, a almost funny comical distraction because I don't think that they do much harm. Uh, I think the anti-vaxxers, uh, they do a little bit of harm, but they are in a very small minority. So it's not a, a, a major public health problem. And I think they should have, I think it's important that they're allowed to, uh, to voice their concern. I'm very, pro, very much pro-vaccines but I don't want to censor them. I want, it's important that they can say what they think and then we can be in a discussion with them. Uh, I think for, for the lockdowns, uh, it, it's been a catastrophe because those sort of pseudoscience anti, uh, 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 the pseudoscience pro lockdown people are in the majority. So they have created a huge amount of damage on public health and on science. Yes, and it's the paradox right there that they consider themselves to be the scientific-based thinkers calling those of us who are skeptical of lockdown who think that lockdown is causing more harm than good pseudoscientific believers. So we're in this very strange crossroads also posing a future danger to public health. And this is what worries me. This is just one pandemic. From all the reading I've been doing over the last decade, there will be others. And what makes public health function is the public's faith in those directing what we do. 
it's not just Dr. Fauci or Sage, it's everyone. It's a huge concern. It's a huge concern because, as you said, there will be more pandemic, but there will also be other health issues that we have to deal with. And the collapse in trust uh, between the population and the, and the scientific community and the public health community is uh, very concerning. Uh, it's going to result to damage in the years to come. Well, there, these forces are asking us for a blind act of faith that is based on no data to bad data to a lot of obfuscation. As you notice with the presidential election in the US, there was this idea that, you know, Trump is bad and anti-science and Biden is good and pro-science. Meanwhile, I'm sure you've noticed he's planning for a four to six week lockdown when he gets into power. And so we're being pushed with masks. We look like Darth Vader on the street. We're being told not to go anywhere. Mental health is failing. Aside from people with pre-existing cardiac, diabetes, and obesity issues, how many of us are getting cardiac problems because of the stress? All of these questions. And we're expecting to hold on for the next pandemic. I mean, who's going to listen to the next leader when in the next few years we find out how badly this was handled? Who will believe the next leader, right? Well, I have a suggestion for the next pandemic. Listen to Dr. Sunita Gupta at Oxford University. She's the world's preeminent infectious disease epidemiologist. So uh, when the next pandemic comes, listen to her. Thank you.